Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Lars Ulrich. The Black Album, it's sold 5, 7 million copies already, and who the fuck knew that that was even possible? James Hetfield. We're all here at the same time hearing some new music, and as scary as that is in itself, it is like revealing a part of yourself, and we were out there like raw and on our own. Kirk Hammett. That was the first tour where we got to, to see just the appeal of heavy metal in all these weird places. We knew we had fans everywhere. <laughs> The Metallica Podcast. The Black Album. This is side six. Team Ugly. And so we're playing in, in England and, and we're now in London and every single member of the press is there and finally we're gracious enough to come over and play in Europe and uh, obviously a different band than when we played at Hammersmith Odeon you know, on the Justice Tour three years before. We're at Wembley Arena. We've got this big fancy stage. There's a drum kit on either side. Halfway through the set, play like, you know, on one side. And then an hour into the show, I'm supposed to run over to the other, you know, after a guitar solo, bass solo. And the drums are supposed to come out of the floor. And this big, here I am on the other side, rock and roll moment, uh, embracing every cliche. There's all the press, and now it's time. I think it was the Four Horsemen or whatever. And, of course, as the drums are supposed to come out of the stage, they decide to stay in stage and not come out. And, you know, the the opening is there. You can see the symbols. You can see this. Maybe the drums come up, like, halfway. <laughs> you know, I can just feel 20,000 people at Wembley Arena not laughing at the drums, not laughing at the band, but laughing at me. And all the crew guys, the carpenters, and the, all everybody comes out, and they fucking got like tools and tire irons, and all this fucking the drum kit is stuck under the stage. I play like the Four Horsemen, basically under the stage, <laughs> like again, like waving up to the people from under the stage, <laughs> right? And then finally the drums come up like manually, like a song or two in, and then the drums are supposed to track down the stage and then of the drums won't move and the guys are out there they're pushing the drums down i mean it is spinal tap times a thousand every fucking just cliche gone wrong every single member of the british press is there i'm the laughing stock it had to happen in london in front of the music press of the world that was still the one that i carry with me I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> I still but, do but, three, three, three hours of therapy yeah, a week on that one. I also seem to remember one time we're playing on stage and you run over to the, the, the next drum kit. And while we're still playing the song, all of a sudden the drums went down in the middle of the song. And you're like looking from side to side. You're going, what the heck? And I, I lost. I was laughing so hard. Uh, well, once you go into that level of production and, you know, it's like you're, you're kind of a target. And if you rely on other things than just your music, 
we learned a lot from that and uh, the sense of humor about it the you got to laugh at yourself or else you're going to you're just going to live in misery misery But I tell you, it makes you stronger. It allows you to laugh at yourself and the whole spectacle in itself. I've fallen off the stage. I remember the the stairs that would go down, you know, between songs. You to go down and take a little break or whatever. The stairs were open and I all of a sudden, boom, disappeared. And I'm down there. All of a sudden, I'm looking at the crew guys like, hello, (laughs) what am I doing down here? You know, get back up. And you know, just that that moment of embarrassment where you think, I just want to shrink and just disappear. <laughs> uh, but you go back out and it, you grow in that moment. You just go, ha, did you see that? Yes, uh, I did too. I felt it. And you just got to be real. And just like with our music, you got to be humble. You have to have some humility when stuff like that happens because you know it's going to happen. And it still does. We just set ourselves up and we've learned to kind of laugh about all that stuff over the years. I mean, we were always trying to break down those barriers. And the real attempt was to try to get closer to the fans and to try to get more involved with the fans, to break down that barricade, you know, on a conventional stage between the fans and the audience and that separation that there is between those two. If, if you could kind of identify that, what that barrier signifies. And so what we tried to do with all those stages and all that fancy stuff was to sort of break away with that and try to get the band and the fans, the audience, to to be more like one unit. Mm-hmm. And obviously that uh, occasionally went wrong. But um, yeah, being in the middle, having the crowd in the center, that was a kind of a first. Having the crowd behind us. Yeah, behind. Yeah, being kind of three sixty, and then yeah, the whole other thing of backstage, allowing them backstage by filming it and. Trying to get as close, and really what we're trying to do is take ourselves off the stage and put everyone on the stage, you know, to feel like a level playing field. Yes, you can do this too. (laughs) It might take a few years of practice, but level the playing field and maybe try and take a little pressure off of ourselves, but to involve the crowd. And that's the never-ending quest for us. Will it sound good out there? So, here's a little surprise for you all. Figure it out. Just to just comment on the snake pit, the shape of it, the diamond shape, was super effective because it created two front rows on the long sides. And then if you had a, a, a ticket for behind the stage, traditionally with a regular stage, those were like the worst seats in the house. But for the for the snake pit, and when you were behind, it was great because you had a different perspective because the stage actually lifted towards the end so that we can actually access those people who had the quote-unquote crappy seats. Yeah, they were above the vomitorium, so you could actually, we were on the same level as them up there, you yep. know? 
Totally. I think that's what it's called. But the other thing that was really cool about that stage was me being the singer and being stuck right in the center in one spot. Hey, let's put Mike over here. Let's put a mic over there. Because I certainly wasn't going to be wearing the little Madonna <laughs> thingy, whatever, you yeah. know, and run around. So keep it Metallica, but also I get to see different people all over the place, just like Lars wanted to, you know, pop up on the other side. And it's all about getting close. an investment in you're going to be out there playing hundreds of shows the best way to stay engaged is to be close to the audience because if you get to a place of fuck i can play these songs in my sleep or burnout or whatever you're never as a human going to burn out on the interaction with the audience because if nothing else the audience can help carry you through i mean you know you're not going to sit there and have 200 great shows, some shows are great, some shows are less great or whatever, but the more you get into it with the audience, they'll help carry you through those moments when you're maybe not at your best or whatever. You feel like you can rely on that human interaction, you know what I mean? So it's just always kind of an attempt. And this was really the first time we got away from the conventional stage. Lightning Puppets and Justice was all conventional one end. But this was the first time, and basically since then, so it's coming up on 30 years now, whenever we've done an indoor tour, we have fucked with the, with the setting and tried to play in some way, shape, or form in the round, in 360, and tear down the conventional elements of, of a one-end stage and have done it now for 30 years and hopefully would continue to. Also, I think it's important to, to mention that subsequently, since doing that, a lot of other bands have copied that and stolen the idea. We, we're not the first band to play in the middle, but we pioneered a lot of aspects of playing in that, that sort of situation. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, Side 6 continues.
there's one thing that I think we can all relate to, and that is when you make a record. It's like, fuck, we're, you know, these songs and we're making this record and it's going to come out. And there's this whole thing that you get just very sort of caught up in. Yeah, expectations. And, and then and then on the other side of that, one day you hand the record over to somebody else and then it shows up a month later, two months later, and then you share it with the whole world. When we were 22 years old, we were fueled by cynicism and we were fueled by contrary energy about what, like Kirk is saying, what every one of these bands represented. It not only were we on Team Ugly and they were on Team Beautiful, to put it that black and white, but the fact that we were on Team Ugly was what fueled us. And it felt it good. Set, it, it felt good to be apart. on Team Ugly. Yeah, because it set us apart. It was like we were representing all the people that were outcasts and, and that, that didn't fit in anywhere. There was this whole system in place that rewarded the good-looking bands, the pretty-sounding bands, and so on. And then we the came bands along. that would obey. Yeah, that would play yeah. the game. Submissive. And, and were all into all that and, and had those qualities. And then, you know, we came along, and I think it showed the people in the record companies and the music business for the first time that there was a whole slew of people that fell outside of that that wanted to be entertained also by people that were maybe more like them it was a very transitional moment in a way but we were just so fueled we never felt like we were so much part of of the heavy metal world that i think there was this desire to always challenge the status quo to challenge the expected and to try to sort of just kind of tear it up and throw it away and do our own thing. We were just constantly trying to, I guess, fuck shit up, basically, like it said on those t-shirts back then, and, and just do different things. Jake Berry, production manager. You know, wherever you go, heavy metal, hard rock, whatever you want to call it, always has an underground following. It, it was like the rebellious music, the ACDCs, the Metallicas, they were the shows that your mothers never wanted you to go to. Ann Powers, music critic, NPR. Metal was the music of the people when I was growing up. And it was definitely stoner, outsider music. But it also had this aura around it as being really, really, really just real, you know? And even when I was the artiest high school kid you ever met. I felt like that was the music of my town. Good evening, Wembley and the world! Because of our success and, and, and because of what we were doing that was just an extension of who we were and, and the choices we were making, now we were being invited to these things that had mm. felt like for years was... It was like another world. And in some way, again, not to harp too much on, on that thing, but it represented a world that we've never felt that we had been part of and in some way were almost even rebelling against. And so this weird mixture of we're kind of penetrating the mainstream. The mainstream's coming to us. This is all a little awkward, but at the same time, we're being accepted. So lots of 
confluence of different energies, both uh, acceptance and feeling proud, but also a little bit like, I still never felt that we really belong there. You know, I remember going to the after party and everybody's like there and we're kind of still over in the corner being yeah. like the yeah. bastard stepchildren. What do we something. do here? Yeah. <laughs> right. What are you supposed to do? Uh, right. you know, like, go mingle around. Yeah. Yeah. There's mingle there's mean. Elton John and yeah. these guys. Should that, I go up and talk to Liza Minnelli <laughs> or what? I really want to speak to her. <laughs> it, was, it was cool. And again, regular guys and tearing down the wall of there's something really important and we're just some dudes that can kind of get together and not have a job and we get to play. And then, you know, seeing, hey, there's Annie Lennox, there's Robert Plant. Uh, uh, what Dave, am I doing yeah, here? David you know? Bowie. Yeah, David Bowie and like, actually Elton talking John. with Robert Plant and him saying, oh, hey, James. It's like, huh? <laughs> you know who I am. I'm going to here, pinch me, wake up. But it was a moment of, okay, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. These people are just like us. We've made them up to be these big, scary, monstrous, cool, untouchable people. But they are, they're just as nervous and just as in a bit of a dream as we are. So, so it was a really good moment. Adam Dubin documentary filmmaker. That was just an amazing two days. I mean, the concert itself, but the rehearsal at Bray Studios the day before or two days before was like off the hook because now you're just in a smaller space with Queen and they were just lining up all the people that were going to, you know, kind of step in with them and do a special song. So we were really proud. Our guy, James, is in there with all these other rock gods kind of just waiting their turn to go do your rehearsal with Queen. And we felt he deserved it. Queen had gotten Tony Iommi to play guitar on Stone Cold Crazy. And that was pretty amazing because what we saw was James Hetfield suddenly kind of almost devolve into a fanboy. He was so emotional about it. Tony Smith tour manager. James is very concerned about the audience. Are we delivering to the audience? Are they getting their money's worth? Are we giving the best we can give? And if something goes wrong technically, or even as within the band themselves, he probably feels it the most and hurts the most. I'm proud of the fact that we've never been precious. Whatever brings you in, we don't judge that. You're a better fan than that fan. <laughs> There's an A-level fan and a B-level fan and a C-level fan. I mean, fuck that. If you get turned on by what we do in any way, shape, or form, that's that's great. And however it affects you, obviously we're aware of of the many different ways that music affects people, but I, I, I we've never been precious in that way. They've all grown up, the fan base have grown up with them, and dedicated fans. I mean, there was this kid... He would follow Metallica everywhere in the world. You see him. It's fanatical. He'd nearly been to as many shows as I had, and I was the production manager, and I did every show, you know? So, yeah, it was amazing. Come to the party. You're invited. Stick around. Some people stick around for a couple of years. For some people, it's part of a, a thing inside adolescence or a revolving door. I mean, for as many people that 
come up and go, you've changed my life or I've followed you for 30 years. There's as many people that come up and go, are you still in Metallica? Does Metallica still exist? Are, are you still, are you still, are you still, you guys are still touring? Yeah. What do you do now? You're still so, alive? Yeah. So, oh, man. Wait, are you the guy from Metallica? I mean, that's <laughs> sort of my name is just the guy from Metallica. So I accept all those different versions equally and the whole thing about you know fuck that I yeah mean, that, that's, I, that's I agree no, that is never, so cool that never been our thing We got three generations of people at our shows. Whether you're there to show someone how to start a mosh pit, or if you're there because I heard nothing else matters at my wedding for the first time. <laughs> Whatever it is, you're there. And what I love about and what I got to see and enjoy through all the whole Black Album tour, three plus years of it, was see all the different kinds of fans and how they react to music how they interact with their friend next to them, how many people are watching the audience <laughs> instead of us, because there's so much cool stuff happening out there that we get to see. So close, no Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Side 6 continues. We toured a lot up till The Black Album, but obviously it went on a different level on The Black Album. And let's not forget, obviously, Russia and, and all these great gigs behind the former Iron Curtains. But on The Black Album tour, we played in the Philippines for the first time. We played in... Yeah, Bangkok. Uh, we, we played in Thailand for the first time. Indonesia. Uh, we played in. We played two nights, not just one night. We played two nights in Indonesia. We were in a lot of places for the first time and seeing lots of, like James is talking about, how music affects people all over the world, both radically different. I mean, take an audience in, I don't know, Helsinki, Finland, and compare that to an audience we played 
in Argentina for the first time. We played in Chile. We played in Venezuela, these different places. And seeing audiences, you know, in Buenos Aires and Helsinki and Jakarta, Indonesia, all radically different, but also completely the same in that they're letting themselves go and experiencing music and the sense of community with their fellow people and their friends, their peers, and then Metallica up there on stage and what music can bring on a global basis. I mean, at that time, it was still when you traveled around, it was different countries, different foods, different currencies, different culture, uh, cultures, you know, it it was a different experience, you know, and, and, (laughs) Uh, that was the first time we got a chance to to go all over Latin America, Central America, and that was a, also a significant part of the Black Album experience, how that record reached to different parts of the world for the first time. I don't know if our records at that time were available in Indonesia, but we played two nights in the National Soccer Stadium. There was 100,000 people there over two nights. So somehow it connected even though people may not be able to go to the store the next day and buy our albums at least legit, even, you know, it may have been bootlegs, who cares? But Metallica got out there and connected people all over the world to each other, and that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Ya son más de 10 años metiéndole y todavía sueno como nuevo. Barbie no tiene relevo, me sobra el dinero, el respeto y los huevos. Yo, cada movimiento que hago, el juego otro nivel lo elevo. Tú sonaste, te apagaste y no lleva ni la mitad de lo que llevo. J Balvin, Blacklist Artist. I dream to see them. They went to Bogota, Colombia. But I was so broke that I just couldn't go. You know, I was like, try everything to go. Then it was in Bogota, their first concert. If we talk about culture, you know, like, let's say in the Latino part, you know, but to me, I just think about global. It seems like people that love Metallica will hate reggaeton. But I'm a, I'm an open-minded guy. I think music is to unify. Juan Ez, blacklist artist. First time I saw them was in the United States. Actually, it was here in Miami because when they went to Colombia first time back in the 90s, I was in Los Angeles. They sold more tickets than anybody in the story of, of live shows in Colombia. There were like 120,000 tickets sold. I was like crazy. <laughs> That was the first tour where we got to, to see just the appeal of heavy metal in all these weird places, you know, like in Indonesia. We knew we had fans everywhere, but we just didn't know what the, the extent of it was until that tour and that album. And, uh, you know, for me, I was just surprised that we were playing these places because I really didn't th- think about the fact that maybe there was a heavy metal audience in, in Indonesia. So it was really interesting to find all that out. It just goes back to trying to think outside the box and kind of feeding off the conventional wisdoms or elements of what the business was at the time. And then even more important than whether every one of these attempts to think outside the box was successful or not, the fact that we were thinking outside the box is even more important. I tried to break the mold 
and trying to just do our own thing and always, I guess, feeling that not just the band, but that everybody in the Metallica family were, everybody was just trying to do what's best for Metallica, but unconventionally and just break the mold. <laughs> How about just a little more? You guys want a little more? Cliff Bernstein, Metallica manager, co-founder, Q Prime Artist Management. It was one of those ideas. You're just sitting in an office and you're talking about, oh, what would be fun to do? What could make an impression? Someone in Electra said, well, wouldn't it be great if we had like a listening party in like Madison Square Garden, let's say. And Peter and I immediately said, yes, that would be great. Let's do it. And then it's like, oh, how are we going to do that exactly? Obviously, it's not free to rent Madison Square Garden for a night. And giving tickets out, well, that's a hassle, too. I was, okay, that's different. Is this going to work? And it was the whole preparation to it was just like, let's do a Madison Square Garden concert. Let's get the band there. Let's get all the ground travel arrangements, the air travel. Let's get everything done. Uh, we just don't have any equipment. <laughs> there's no loading. Uh, there's no sound check per se. The, it was like just, just play through the speakers. We had the good audio set up in there, but that was about it. David Frick, rock critic, Rolling Stone. It was a gesture back to the fans. They could have held it anywhere, but they didn't want the listening to party to be just for people like me. That would be the normal thing. You have a listening party, you invite the press, radio, some friends, everybody has a few drinks. It's a good laugh. It's a great tradition. But doing it at the garden was exactly in the same mentality and idealism as that night backstage in England where they sat for two hours signing whatever the fans had when they came through that hallway. We're proud of this record. We'd like you all to hear it. So 20,000 of you come in and we'll play it really, really loud, which is the way it should be heard anyway. And so the Madison Square Garden thing, it was billed as the world's biggest listening party. 18,000 people showed up at Madison Square Garden to listen to our records. I remember we were in New York walking out on stage at Madison Square Garden. But wait, wait, you, for, you, for, you forgot something. We walked through the audience, remember? Right. We started at the very back and walked from the back down the aisle and up onto the stage. At Madison Square Garden, the idea was that the album was going to play. It was a listening party where there's some people who were expecting us to come out and play. But the four of us walked out addressed our fans there and, and it was very surreal being on that stage without instruments, almost like the safety of the instruments, being able to hide behind the guitars or the drums, which was, had always been our uh, safety blankets, maybe is the right word. You felt safe. I could hide behind the drums. You had the power of the volume. It's like if somebody hit a chord, it would almost be a protective wall 
between your insecurities with interaction with an audience or, or the vulnerability of all that. But I just remember standing out on stage going, oh, my God, this is really weird. There was nothing tangible to hold on to or hide behind. It was just the record playing. And I don't know if it was loud. I remember walking away going, like, did, was it loud enough? Did that make sense? Could people yeah, hear what the we fuck were, was we going were on? We were having a conversation and thinking that the audience was louder than the actual playback itself and us wondering if the audience could even tell what was going on. I, I couldn't imagine going to an arena and listening to a new album and not watching the band play that you're just, okay, did they actually absorb it? Could they even feel it or did that even matter? The fact that they were there, they got to witness that and be a part of that. Just the uniqueness of it. And that to me was kind of one of the first times where it felt like we were allowing other ideas in, you know, coming into fruition. And we're doing things that no other band had thought of. I think it was pretty spectacular. And whether it sounded good or not, it was a growing experience for us walking out there. I can't hide behind one of my two drum kits or one and a half yeah. drum kits, whatever shows up. And actually being out there and raw, we're all here at the same time hearing some new music. And as scary as that is in itself, you're letting go of your, you know, here's our new baby. Here it is. You know, oh, my God, that's ugly. Or, oh, that's beautiful. It is like revealing a part of yourself. And we were out there, like you said, kind of raw and up there on our own. At the end of the day, they're the people who are going to come see us live. or They're the people we're reaching out for. And they're reaching out for someone who's representing them. The importance of who was listening at the listening party was the people who were going to absorb that and bring that into their lives and listen. When we saw the first major crowd reaction at MSG and got the feedback from that, it was like just a huge endorsement. I heard what the band said, so I know more or less what they felt after that MSG party. But for the rest of us standing around on stage, it was also, oh my God, this is gonna be good. The first Pearl Jam record comes out and sells 10 million copies. Just goes from zero to 10 million in like one year. So we didn't have that, but it was something that built steadily over the course of 10 years. So the fifth record comes out and now we have the Monster Runaway Train album. I'm happy for us that it came in year 10 rather than in year one or two, because I think we were better equipped to deal with it. Jason Newstead. Metallica bassist from 1986 to 2001. There's only been four records that have ever achieved that in the history of mankind, or since they've been counting them anyway that way. Two of them are greatest hits records, so they're not actually studio albums. And two of them are Dark Side of the Moon and the Black Album by Metallica. Everybody knows how many records this thing sold and is selling, and that's how the world measures everything, right? But the impact and the influence that the Black Album has had on so many different styles of music is because of where it was allowed to be played on the radio at the time. For me, if the Black Album was our first album and it did what it did, I think one of us right here would be dead. You know, the fame would have just made 
namely me, insane, <laughs> and I wouldn't have been able and, to and, handle it. And me it. too. And <laughs> so. I, I, I wouldn't have been equipped to, to handle it at all. Right. Things happen for a reason. And the fact that we built up, we paid our dues, we did all the stuff we had to do, I think that gave us the endurance and the at least the eye to see why and how this was happening around us. Greg Steele Hepner, DJ. KNAC. Metallica, prior to 1991, they had been this amazingly large, but still fairly underground to the mainstream. However, KNAC played the living shit out of Metallica. And it was really the one place in the universe where you knew you could go and still get a heavy dose of Metallica. So 1991, the universe of hard rock was sort of in an unusual place. And as Metallica and Guns N' Roses, and Pearl Jam, and Nirvana, and Soundgarden all released groundbreaking albums. Metallica became this big force that I don't think anybody really even saw coming. The, the kind of where do you go from there question, uh, what does it look like on the other side of an album? People always talk about, you know, Metallica goes to the mainstream, but again, I've always said it was the mainstream that came to us. It was the mainstream that kept moving further and further out left field to where bands like us and all our disenfranchised brothers and sisters in other bands were hovering in do-it-yourself movements and independence in autonomy, trying to figure out our own voice, who we were, what we were doing, how we would fit into all of this. And all of a sudden, like, holy shit, there's millions of other people out there who feel like I feel, who feel alienated, disenfranchised, and I'm fucking embracing Metallica. <laughs> think that there was anybody in the populace that was expecting what the Black Album ended up becoming. I don't think sonically people were aware of what it was going to be. I don't think anybody really knew just how big of an impact that record was going to have. At KNAC, we were fortunate enough to be in a position to sort of be the home-based radio station for a band that was now becoming the biggest band in the world. What was amazing about Metallica is that they could embrace grandiosity and remain taut and powerful and focused. And they somehow were able to do both. It's almost a character in a book that over time becomes almost like part of the culture. And it seems to me like Metallica. And so many of their songs and so many of the songs on the Black Album have become part of the culture, and it's something that young people gravitate to, even today, even if it's 30 years old. It doesn't matter. It's just as relevant today as it was then. Lena Dawes, music journalist. The Black Album really introduced different ways of thinking, like, what is heavy? What does heavy mean? The Black Album really pushed that thought or that idea forward.
Ron Quintana, Bay Area DJ. I, I liked every type of music, the heavier the better. So we weren't sure what was going to happen with a Bob Rock guy and a Black album. And, you know, it was amazing. But no one, no one, no one in the Bay Area ever thought anything, especially me, anything like what happened with the Black album would happen. These guys are too heavy. They're never going to be on the radio that popular. Yeah, they'll get occasional videos on Headbangers Ball or something. But you know what happened in 91? It just took off. All these just nerds and misfits and loners basically took over technology in Silicon Valley. And, and sometimes I equate it kind of to all us bands out on the fringes of the mainstream ended up becoming the mainstream because I think there was this seismic shift out to where bands like us were occupying and the spaces we were occupying and realizing that we were not alone. And and it was such a beautiful thing. But that mm. that's part of that whole shift that kind of culminated in the early 90s. We're in New York, and we were playing the Grammys, uh, and we played Enter Sandman at the Grammys at Radio City. I remember the next day, more people going, hey, Metallica, hey, Lars, hey. It was like one of those, like, fuck, I, it seems like things have shifted a little bit. <laughs> Not necessarily <laughs> overnight, but the, the culmination of, it was like that was the day where it seemed to, even though maybe it wasn't that drastic, it was like, wow, it, things have changed a little bit just in terms of that recognition factor. The Black Album, it's sold five, seven million copies already. And who the fuck knew that that was even possible? It goes back to what I was just saying about Triumph for the Nerds, that whole thing that the underdogs could triumph at that level, that it was possible for a band like us, Team Ugly, my new favorite phrase. There's got <laughs> to be a T-shirt in there somewhere. But that Team Ugly, it goes back to what I was just saying about Triumph for the Nerds, that whole thing, the underdogs could triumph at that level. People really had an idea of the power and magnitude that the Black Album would have because they had a really great career up to that point playing arenas as a thrash band. And they had a really long song that was a video on MTV, but ultimately it was not one of those mass appeal things that got them on the radio and got them anywhere. Nobody knew that they were going to become the biggest band in the world. We were Team Ugly. If you well, sat you know, a bunch of people down and, and said, okay, 1991, who are going to be like the huge mega-selling bands? None of them, I guarantee you, would have said Metallica. We're a stubborn bunch. <laughs> Please welcome Robert True Trujillo. Thank you. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. Alas, tis I, Lord of Darkness, <laughs> the Whiskey Warlord. Tell him the first gig. Uh, well, exactly. The second gig, right? Exactly. There was no advice. That's the <laughs> No, the advice was the train is rolling, jump on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The train is rolling, jump on board because it's moving fast. 
And for me, this was like very surreal. It was all happening so quick. I mean, it was just at the pinnacle of anything I ever experienced in my life. And you got to remember, though, we, we did a tour in 1994 and Rob was there. There was a lot of anticipation into what Metallica would be releasing and a lot of sightings around Southern California and L.A. specifically. And so it was exciting to hear what was about to happen. So when I first obviously heard Sandman, it, it was very different, but it blew my mind. It was a learning experience, I think, for all of us diehard Metallica fans to understand and embrace this new genre of metal coming from this incredible group of, of guys, this cast of characters that we had sightings of around town <laughs> in the neighborhood. I didn't actually think that I would be actually playing it with them. I know there were some crazy weird club outings where we would jam on Sandman or For Whom the Bell Tolls or whatever. You know, that was kind of what we used to do back then at various parties and in uh, jams around town. For me, it was always sort of that. It never seemed real that that could happen. To me, the first element of this was Rob came up here, we hung out, we had a few nights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had a few late nights, early mornings, and so much of of all of this is just also about the camaraderie, the togetherness, the vibe, how you get along. The tough couple years that we had were the one-two punch of Jason leaving and then the subsequent meltdowns. And, and then all the, the first, the hardships that came in the, came in the wake of that, but then the good and new sense of rebirth and new positive attitudes that came out of, of that, those dark couple years that Rob was a blessing and was a, a gift and would fit right in to this new sense of more self-awareness, more being comfortable, being more comfortable with our vulnerabilities. I realized quickly that Rob would come into this and hold his own and that he in the same way that Jason was different than Cliff and Cliff was different than Ron that he would bring his own dynamic his own energy his own world to what we're doing coming up on side seven of the Metallica podcast volume one the black album cover Stories. It's important to remember that Metallica started out as a cover band. We love playing other people's music, and then out of that came our own songwriting and came our own voice and our own thing. The cover element, the reinterpretation of song has always been dear to our hearts. In true Metallica fashion, we tried to make sure that it was not just another covers album. The guy said, look, we love our contemporaries in the hard rock genre, but it would be too easy to make a record that was just a covers album with rock and metal bands. Let's try to span the globe here. I discovered Metallica when I was uh, at school. I was in sixth or seventh grade in Colombia at that time. When I listened to uh, Metallica for the very first time, I just get crazy about it. My favorite type of cover is when 
different genres uh, reinterpreting our music. People get to put their heart in. They get to celebrate the Black Album through their own art, which is spectacular. It's like a, a, a thing that keeps giving. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Executive produced by Lex Friedman for Art19 at Amazon Music. Produced by Lars Murray and Dennis Shire for PopCult. Story producers and writers, Mike Mettler and Catherine Turman. Mixing, sound design and editing, Rob Spate. Showrunner and creative direction, Dennis Shire. If you love what you've heard, give us a five-star review and share this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and ask your fellow Metallica fans to subscribe too. I'm Claire Sturgis. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.